Hello, everybody. This is Mark Vines, and welcome to the Mark Vines Show. This is your one-stop shop for everything American, the truth, conservatism, and really, frankly, just the right way of living. And I want to continue on today with another interview and introducing you to all the candidates that are running for statewide office in Virginia here later on this year. And we're going to meet everybody that I can uh invite in here to the show just so you guys have an idea of the quality of the candidates that we have running for office and today we have joining us tim cox and tim cox has been gracious enough to come on to the show and talk to us about you know his feelings and his positions on the various issues and he's going to be running for district 51 here in northern virginia which um it goes from Lake Ridge all the way out to um, uh, Noakesville, which is going to be out on the west side of the district. And he can tell you a little bit more about that, the issues that they're having, and the things that are going to be separating him out from his opponent. And with that, we have Tim. So Tim is on the line. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Yeah, Mark, thank you very much for having me on your show. Great. Well, listen, I just kind of gave the uh, the listeners uh, a little bit about you, but tell us a bit more about you and, and what brings you ultimately to wanting to run for the House of Delegates here in Virginia. Sure. Yeah. As Mark said, my name is Tim Cox. I'm running for the House of Delegates in District 51. That runs from just west of I-95, the Lake Ridge, Woodbridge area, out to Manassas Airport, and then further out to Noakesville. So it's a great area. It's part of Northern Virginia, a beautiful part of the country, high op tempo, lots of busy people, government contractors, immigrants, etc. We have a wonderful, diverse district. So I am running to represent it. Uh, I grew up overseas in Brazil. Uh, my parents are missionaries down there. My dad is a professor. My mom is a registered nurse. My dad originally from New Jersey. My mom from San Francisco. They met in Ohio and they decided to go help people in Brazil. I was born in Texas, and then when I was three, my dad took us back down to Brazil, and because his dad actually worked there for a number of years. And so I wouldn't exchange that background for anything from age three to 19. I grew up there, I learned the language, I learned a little bit of Spanish as well, I love soccer. And every three, uh, well, every four or five years, we would come back to Texas, Indiana, New York, on furloughs to visit supporting churches, family, and friends. And we would plug into the public school system. We loved uh, gauging our progress because in Brazil we were homeschooled and we connected to international schools and a private school as well. So we had a diverse educational background. And I just see the importance of that for children, even in our district, you know, having options for parents. Parents have choice in education. And so that was a little bit of my background. After Brazil, I went to Cedarville University. I graduated with a degree in global economics, international business. I joined the Navy, served my country for several years. I continue in the Navy Reserve. And I have been encouraged by several people in District 51 to run for this seat and to continue a legacy and a life of service. Well, interesting. So now you, you just mentioned that, um, oh, by the way, thanks for your service. Uh, fantastic. Your continuing service to the nation. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned in your district that a number of people have encouraged you to run. Tell us a little bit about that. How, how did that come about? Sure. So I've been in Woodbridge now for five years. I have long wanted to serve in public office. And as I was looking at different opportunities, Rich Anderson, the previous GOP incumbent, took me under his arm. He's been a mentor and friend. And he said, Tim, run for this seat. Look at a local seat. 
there's a lot of great people in this area, businesses uh, that see eye to eye with what you're talking about. Uh, you're a naval officer. We have a lot of military here. And so he just encouraged me to do that. Uh, so he would be one of the top people, I would say. Uh, his, his wife as well, Ruth Anderson, who ran for the Board of County Supervisors, have Janine Lawson, uh, Ken Cuccinelli actually lives in our district as mm -hmm. well. So I've had a, a great number of people who have been mentors and encouragers in that regard. Well, that's fantastic. And this is your first run for an office, correct? It is. Okay. So tell us a little bit about, we, we could go in a number, number of directions talking about different issues. And so what, I, and, and before we get to where you differ from your opponent, Tell us a bit about what are the hot button issues for you that you see in the state and what is yeah. it do you think um, is really going to resonate with the the, the voters later on as uh, we go into the election season? Sure. Yeah. My top three areas are faith, family and freedom. Those are the bedrocks of society. From there, I talk about education. I talk about the economy, health care, public safety. But what I've been noticing is that we have been straying from our constitutional freedoms. We have been straying from the foundation that makes our country great, which are our first, second, third, et cetera, amendment rights. We basically, some people have chosen to look at the constitution and to read it differently. They impose their own ideas upon the text in setting, instead of letting the text govern their own ideas. And, and that's a problem. Our founders wrote the text and the constitution with a means to change and amend it if necessary. And so we've done that over the years. We have amended the constitution and we can amend it again if necessary. But many people don't want to take the supreme law of the land at its word. They would rather live their lives the way they want to instead of the way that the constitution has prescribed for the greatest country on earth. And so that's why I think we need to get back to the basics. We need to teach our kids that this is the most exceptional, wonderful nation in the history of humanity because of those principles, because of freedom of religion, faith, because of the nuclear family, which is under attack. Last I checked, having a loving father and mother and children was the, a universal aspiration. It wasn't just a Western prescribed concept. It was a universal aspiration. And then, of course, the freedom that comes from that, when you are not ashamed to live out and to speak up based on your principles and on your sincerely held religious beliefs, when you are not ashamed of your family and your background, that gives you so much freedom and confidence. And so I want to encourage people in that regard. We have so many people come from overseas and they know this. They fled nations where they did not have freedom and they're coming to the United States of America and we're passing some of the bad policies that they were fleeing. And so they know better. And many of them, though, have not been courted by the Republican Party as they have been courted by the Democrat Party. And so many will just vote blue, not knowing what to do. That's wrong. We, you know, we need to engage more. We need to speak out. We need to say, look, we have so much common ground. So those are a few of the things that I've been noticing in my district and, of course, at a national level. But I've been noticing that a lot in Northern Virginia. Yeah, you know, that's interesting that you just mentioned that uh, Republicans don't court the immigrants the way that the Democrats do. And I've often said, and if you listen to the Mark Vine show often, you will hear me give one compliment to Democrats and one compliment only. And that is how they uh, tactically address 
their issues when it comes to um, pushing those ideas on to the you know the people that come to this country and and I the, just their ability to do that to really out tactically think Republicans is amazing and I and instead of criticizing them what I say to Republicans is we need to do a better job at messaging uh, what it is that that we believe because really what we believe is the superior. Um, pattern it really it just is mm-hmm. you know uh, adhering to the constitution adhering to the nuclear family ad- adhering to um you know education and and supporting our institutions that is the superior way of doing things that's the it's the rational way of doing things but we're not really good at messaging that and so i really like the fact that you're saying we we need to go out and do a better job at reaching to our nation's new immigrants that come into uh our country in the district that you're talking about Northern Virginia in general has a huge immigrant immigrant population, yes. doesn't it? Yes, very much so. I, I love immigrants. Immigrants are some of the most pro-America uh, patriotic people out there. My wife is an immigrant. Mm-hmm. She grew up in Brazil. She's Brazilian. Her mom is British, so she also has British uh, citizenship. And now she is American. She is a legal American citizen. Mm -hmm. She is a proud American citizen. But what we noticed, even at the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, there would be people there handing out, oh, you know, get out the vote. And they're all Democrats. There's not Republicans there. And, And so, like you're saying, yes. They do a better job of courting, of coming alongside, of getting the information out. And, and that relationship, that engaging aspect is important. Uh, but, of course, my wife, she, she already has her mind made up. She's a brilliant woman. She's a medical doctor in Brazil and in the U.K. She lived through some of the socialistic policies of the National Health Service in the U.K. You have generations of people depending on government handouts. You have generations of people depending on the government caring for them. And that's something we do not want in the United States. Basically, it makes healthcare providers, doctors and nurses, into a form of indentured servant where their services are required and mandated by the government. Their salaries are mandated by the government. They cannot become experts in their fields. If I'm going to have someone do a surgery on me, I want the best person to do that. In the United States, we have a system that encourages competitiveness, that encourages people rising to the top of their fields, and they we want the best. And, of course, they're paid for it, and there's nothing wrong with them being paid for it. But so those are some of the differences in the systems, you know, across the Atlantic and here. And in Brazil, they also have a government run system that is notorious. People can wait 10 plus years for a hip surgery. You know, there's a there's a running joke saying that, well, if they get cancer, then they'll go from stage one to heaven before they actually receive chemotherapy. It's Mm. tragic. But those are the results that you get with a socialist run system. My wife lived that. She practiced that. And here in the United States. Uh, Lord willing, maybe someday she'll be a medical doctor as well. But right now we're raising a family and and we're going through the immigration process, which recently ended. So uh, we have a lot of things on our plates, but she's a brilliant woman. Uh, She already knew the policies and the Constitution that she wanted to protect and conserve. And I'm very proud and happy to be married to her. Yeah, and I tell you something. My my wife is also first generation, and uh, you you are absolutely right. You know the people that came here to this country, and in her case, it's the Philippines. They are some of the most patriotic, <laughs> you know, pro American people you're ever going to want to meet. And it and it's amazing that the people that have been here for so long uh, really forget how 
really just important it is to be an American and and what really an honor it is and a blessing it is. And if you you know you're a Navy man, I was a Navy man. We've traveled around the world, mm-hmm. and the the freedoms that we take for granted here just don't exist in in many parts of the world. They they just yeah. don't. And so switching gears a little bit. Speaking of that, you mentioned the Constitution and how mm-hmm. you know people don't understand it. They don't understand the purpose of the Constitution. They don't understand the brilliance of the Constitution and why we have it and how the Constitution protects us. And the Constitution, in many ways, protects us from the government. It's it's not just yeah. what the government could. You know, the important thing about the, the Constitution is not so much the powers that it gives the government, but more importantly, the powers it does not give the government. And I think people yeah. forget that. And so we have the issues that have come to the, the forefront in the United States uh, at the national level, but it trickles down into the state level. And in fact, it's the, at the state level that these issues have to be pushed forward. They can't be implemented any other way. And that is, uh, you know, policies regarding uh, our education system. And I know in your region, not not necessarily in any towns that are in your district, but close by, specifically Loudoun County, we have seen, mm-hmm. um, the, you know, critical race theory. And uh, concerning that, something I'm, I'm really concerned about is the, the fact that the residents aren't even allowed to speak at school board meetings and, and address their concerns. Yeah. They're being shut down. And that's bothersome because, again, speaking of the Constitution, you talked about the, the your First Amendment protected free speech, uh, things along those lines. And so maybe uh, touch on that a little bit. And what are, what are your thoughts regarding uh, all sure. those issues? Because that's a big hot button issue, not only nationally, but particularly here in Northern Virginia. Yeah, well, I completely agree with you about the Constitution and the system of checks and balances that it put upon itself and upon the federal government. I mean, that is unique. We are a constitutional republic. We are a representative democracy. We are not a pure democracy, you know, majority vote. We are a representative democracy, which is very important to remind people of as well. That's why we have an electoral college. There are differences, and and it's led to a system that has stood the test of time and led to the most freedom and flourishing in human history. So, right, uh, understood, Roger, that about the Constitution. Regarding critical race theory, yes, just up the road in Loudoun County, right, they're cutting the school board meeting short because they don't want to hear the truth. (laughs) As, you know, Colonel uh, Nicholson would say, I forget what the name of the movie, A Few Good Men, I think. They, They don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear parents speak up in defense of their children. They don't want... The, uh, to be challenged in their efforts to indoctrinate and essentially brainwash a generation. They want to be able to cultivate and to tell people that, no, you are your identity is based on your color and you can be an oppressor and you have certain privileges if you were born white and you need to recognize that, that you are a supremacist and you are an oppressor. And if you are not born white, then you are oppressed. And you have certain privileges that should be given to you and handouts that should be afforded to you. And and it's just, it's wrong. It's trying to base a person's identity on an externality. They don't want to address the soul. They don't want to address character as Martin Luther King Jr. did, not the color of our skin, but the content of our character. That is so much more important. And so, right, it's a big problem. We have critical race theory. We have the 1619 Project. We have BLM and we have the LGBTQ plus agenda that, frankly, are working very closely together for the hearts and minds of our children. They want to over sexualize our education. Three, four year olds 
learning about sex positions, learning about, oh, that gender is fluid. Oh, so gender is fluid except when a person wants to come back to their biological gender. Where's the media then? Where are the support mechanisms then? If a person is like, oh man, I've had these surgeries, I've had all these hormones and therapies, I actually identify now as a man or I identify as a woman as I was born, why isn't gender fluid then? Why can't they go back? And so we are hurting people. We are not speaking the truth in love. The church and well-meaning people are the ones that pick up the pieces of poor decisions. Mm -hmm. We're the ones there to support young mothers who decide to have an abortion and we pick up the pieces. We love on them and we say, look, there are adoption options. There are support mechanisms. What you did was, was bad, but there's redeeming qualities. You can be redeemed. You can come back from this. You know, we need to continue to support adoption options and foster care. We need to hold young men accountable. You know, fathers need to step up to the plate. So the same thing with the LGBTQ plus uh, community, we can love people, but we need to be able to agree to disagree and also to speak up because there is no society on earth that is comprised entirely of LGBTQ plus. It's only amongst people that actually have families and build communities and relationships that a community like that can exist. And so we just need to be very clear and upfront with our message. Well, if you get elected into the House of, of Delegates, uh, where is all of this going to be on your priority list? Yeah, number one, I would say, is education. I've spoken with so many parents, and that is the top priority. So, you know, you have parents that want to take on the enormous task of homeschooling their kids or putting their kids in private school. As taxpayers, they should have tax incentives to do that. If they want to send their kids to public school, that's great too. But they need to have freedom to be able to decide, okay, we don't want our kid necessarily to be forced into this class or that class. So parent choice and education, that's number one. Okay, and switching from there, what are the other hot topics? Uh, that That's a big one. I, I know that that's, that's a, an issue that kind of just came out of the blue. It seems like the last year or two. And I, it just seems to, in, in this area, Northern Virginia has become a real hotbed for that. But what are the other big issues that are on your Public plate? safety. Oh, good Public one. Public safety. Yeah. yeah, crime is on the rise. I mean, goodness, we're, there used to not be murders in Lake Ridge. Well, now there are. Uh, we have elements of MS-13. Yelly uh, Vega is one of the supervisors in Prince William. She wanted to add four police officers to the rosters. And we had a $70 million surplus to the budget because of COVID payments, and the liberal majority voted it down. They would not even add four police officers to walk our streets and to keep them safe. Uh, so we really need to focus on public safety. We need to fund law enforcement, and not just fund, but completely change the way we are treating governing authorities and law enforcement. We need to be grateful. Like, can you imagine... As a young man, as an 18, 19, 20-year-old, you know, I often resented law enforcement. I wanted to prove that my motor skills or my hand-eye coordination were great. I could drive really fast and look, and it wasn't a prejudice, you know, it didn't harm anyone else. And, and, and yet, so I would resent if law enforcement would pull me over. They were doing their jobs. Now, as a young man with a family, I'm so grateful for law enforcement. Some of my neighbors are, are police officers or retired police officers. I have active duty military neighbors. I have immigrant neighbors. I love my neighborhood and my community. And we have these conversations. 
that were across the political spectrum, but everyone agrees we need to fund law enforcement and we need to be grateful for them. And people coming from overseas are like, we love you American police officers. They're, they're gentlemen, they're gentle women. They're wonderful. So we, we have to completely uh, change the narrative that uh, Black Lives Matter and other groups have been trying to push over the last year and a half and using COVID as a, a guinea pig and as an excuse to do that. Yeah, I, I'll tell you, I've never seen a profession like law enforcement treated the way that law enforcement is, where you take one person. I mean, you think of how many police officers and f- state police officers and federal agents there are in the United States, and you you cherry pick one or two incidents where there uh, is misconduct on one officer, and then we say, all right, well, the way that to to fix that wrong is we just get rid of the entire profession. We don't get rid of every surgeon because there's a bad surgeon. We don't get rid of you know the uh, you know all pastors or priests in the. United United States because there's one or two bad. I mean, it's only with law enforcement that we do that, and it's insane. You know, uh, you hear reports that, that we have cities where every measurable statistic has increased when it comes to crime. Um, we have a we have cities where the the homicide rate has increased four hundred percent in one year. Four hundred percent. Just imagine that. That is insane that we are not supporting the uh, the, the police, and that and that it's really just become. Um, it just a badge of dishonor, if you will, to go into law enforcement. And not only are we yeah. losing officers, but we have to think who who in the world would go into law enforcement today being treated that way. And we need to think about not just how it's affecting us now, but 10 years, 20 years down the road, how are we going yeah. to be affected? So I'm glad to hear that that's something that you're going to take on in the House of Delegates. Yes, very much so. Uh, so, right, that's another top priority. I would say another one is business. Uh, as a business major, global economics, international business, uh, we really need to take a close look at some of the policies we're seeking to enact to have a federally mandated minimum wage of $15, $16, whatever, you know, the changing, the goalposts keep moving. And and they're always going to keep moving because enough, it's never going to be enough. Uh, employers need to have the freedom and the ability to determine the minimum wage, to what they're going to pay employees, not minimum wage, wage period. And, and I'll give a little anecdote to back this up. In Brazil, I saw a sign on a Brazilian shop that said you can make a lot of honey, a lot of money, rather, selling honey. And sure enough, it was true. I went out. My dad and I drove about 45 minutes away. I bought four uh, healthy bee boxes with about 60 to 80,000 bees, uh, robust bees, a mixture of Italian, German, and African bees. So it was a very strong hive. And we brought those back. We uh, put the stakes down. We took the bags off of the hives and ran for our lives. And then so I had those four bee boxes, their hives, uh, producing honey. And I partnered with an experienced beekeeper who had equipment and who basically had the experience that I needed to get off the ground. And he benefited from my youthful energy. And so we engaged in a mutually beneficial transaction. Look, if he had been mandated to pay me a set salary, we never could have entered into a mutually beneficial agreement. Uh, our, our free exchange was basically that I benefited from his experience and equipment. He benefited from my youthful energy, and that's how we made it work. Employers and employees often have a similar relationship. It's for mutual benefit, and then, of course, we have competition. Competition helps uh, develop the best products and best customer service. And so we do not want government trying to micromanage as in socialist and communist nations, down to the price of eggs, 
which is ridiculous. Whenever government tries to get involved and micromanage the economy, bad things happen. And so we we need to continue to drive down personal property and corporate taxes in the state of Virginia to attract investment and to let employers and employees uh, make mutually beneficial transactions and benefit their customers. Oh, very well said. Very well said. I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. And so now let's kind of switch to uh, the campaign and your opponent and, and how you differ. Mm-hmm. So maybe kind of give the listeners an overview of how how do you differ from your opponent and what are the things that you're going to try to correct? Sure. Well, number one, my opponent is what they say pro-choice, which of course means pro-abortion, which means killing a child, killing an infant, a fetus, a baby, whatever term you want to use. And the current governor of Virginia went on the radio and supported infanticide, saying, well, if you keep the baby comfortable, you know, and just wrap him or her up, and then the parent and the doctor can decide whether to keep the baby or let the baby die. That is monstrous. <laughs> I mean, that is infanticide. And my opponent and the other side of the aisle support that. They are in favor of that up and through nine months, past the point of birth, where the parent or the mother can just, uh, okay, no, I, I can't deal with this, no going to let the baby die. No. So we we need to be clear on that. There is a life separate and distinct from the life of the mother. And we need to encourage and support that mother and her family and the boyfriend or whoever. There are adoption options. There are foster care options. There are other ways than killing that child. And so that is a big distinction right there. Another distinction is The other side of the aisle keeps increasing taxes. Even during a pandemic year, they increased our taxes in Prince William by 7%, our property taxes. Mm. That's how it's just, it's unnecessary. It's outrageous. the, The driving factors of the American dream are that we are independent and we are personally invested in our own lives more than the government. I can invest, I can make my own financial decisions better than a centralized government in Richmond or Washington, D.C. I don't need you to keep taking my revenue to increase your revenue sources and so that you can micromanage my life. No, I want government out of the way so that I can live my life uprightly and freely and the American dream. So that is another clear difference. I'm going to try to minimize the role of government in people's lives, lower taxes, and also change the narrative, as we talked about a little bit, with regards to law enforcement. They want to defund the police. I will ensure that our law enforcement are funded and that they will have proper pension plans and that they will be attracted to a high and noble career path. Mm-hmm. Very well said. And I... It's amazing because the governor, Governor Northam here in Virginia, is a physician, is he not? He is. He's a pediatrician, which makes it all the worse. Uh, That's just unbelievable to me that he took the stance that he took. That that is just incredible to me. And that's what makes this this whole discussion all the more uh, appropriate and, but at the same time, bizarre, isn't it? That he took the stance that he had. Well, and that's what my wife keeps saying. Yeah, as a pediatrician, you know, he he's supposed to know, like, to work with children and special needs children. 
And instead of having compassion and and wanting to help these children, whether they have Down syndrome or whatever uh, condition they might have, or if they're just perfectly normal, he he doesn't have that compassion. No, he he wants to kill them. <laughs> like he wants the decision to be left to the mother. My body, my choice. And no, it's not. It's a separate body. And goodness, aren't we all grateful that our mothers uh, decided to keep us? Aren't our mothers grateful that their mothers decided to keep them, et cetera, and et cetera? Uh, our lives are, are not our own in that sense. Our lives belong to our creator. He creates us from the moment of conception. Life is sacred from the womb to the tomb. We need to protect life. We need to have a high view of the elderly. I am so grateful for my grandparents. Sometimes, you know, it, elderly, it might miss a beat or they might forget some things. And there are some nations on this earth that are like, oh gosh, they're losing it. So got to say goodbye to Grandma Joe. <laughs> no, euthanasia, abortion, infanticide, those are big no-nos. And that, that mentality, that attitude that the Democrats have has a trickle-down effect to how they view life in general. Yes, Life is sacred and it is full of dignity. Yeah. You know, and it's, I, I really have always thought of it through the, the prism of what you just mentioned there. And that was, what if it was you? What if, what if you were the person sitting on that table and Governor Northam and a nurse were sitting over here on the side uh, with the mother deciding whether or not to end your life? How would you look at that? That might just sort of change how your perspective is in that, that whole issue. What if they were talking about you? You were the person that they were going to abort. It might change your mind. Yeah, and it's they say it's my 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 body, my decision, and as you said, it's not. It's it's a decision for another person, and uh, I'm glad you, that you're taking that up because the the pro death movement is really how I look at it. They've just gotten such a, a stranglehold on the American culture right now. We've we've got to turn that around. Um, how about some other issues? What are some other big issues that you're thinking about? Yeah, well, you know, speaking about the culture of death, well, let's talk mm -hmm. about a culture of life. Let's talk about healthcare. You know, healthcare oh, okay. in yeah. the way it's actually supposed to be conducted. You know, because doctors take the Hippocratic oath: "I will do no harm. I will only do help. I will only help my patients." And so that is something that is near and dear to me. In my family, there are no less than six or seven medical professionals. I mean, we have doctors, we have nurses, we have medical physicists, we have dentists, and these are people, they love on people, they treat them highly and professionally. And like I explained earlier, my wife has seen the whole gambit of you know government healthcare services and the dangers and pitfalls of that to private healthcare system that we have in the United States. But guess what? No healthcare system on earth is perfect. No nation is perfect. We have a lot of room to improve and we need to try to improve in social issues and moral issues and political issues. And yes, also in our healthcare. Even so, <laughs> though we have room to improve, it has led to the best healthcare system in the history of humanity, as we've said over and over, and that is documented. People from all over the world come to the United States to be treated, to have surgeries, to remove their ailments. And so obviously we want to keep that going. We want to have the best doctors and nurses. I'll just give a tangible example. My wife did her medical degree in Brazil. She practiced as a junior doctor for four years in England in the emergency rooms of London. Then she came to the U.S. She started doing the USMLE process, the United States Medical Licensing Examination. She said even the initial 
steps for that test were more rigorous than anything she had seen in Brazil or the UK. So right there, she was already put on notice. She was like, wow, you know, they take healthcare seriously here. But what are some things that could be improved? The doctor, the, the patient provider and insurer relationship could be improved in my opinion, because I'm just going to speak from my own experience. We've gone to uh, the provider, you know, we've, we've had a couple babies. We actually lost one at 37 weeks. Uh, so we've, we've gone through various different experiences and on the civilian side, uh, which is, you know, a little different from the military side. So we've, we've gone through both. On the civilian side, you know, we deliver a baby, we pay our insurance premiums, and we're told you're going to have a set copay. And and I talk to the insurance company and say, okay, that's it. That is the only one-time fee that I'm going to have. There's not going to be hidden fees or charges. Uh, like I pay my premiums, this is the copay, done. Yes, that is how it is. You pay your copay, you're good to go. Well, we deliver the baby, you know, four weeks, five weeks later, we get a bill. It doesn't list my copay. It has a whole bunch of codes that I don't understand. It has a whole bunch of hidden fees. We're talking hundreds of dollars, bordering on thousands of dollars of extra hidden fees and expenditures that were never communicated up front. So I'm contacting the insurance provider. I'm contacting the medical provider asking what is going on. You know, they set up it, they set it to claims department. All this takes months. And of course, all the while, the medical provider is threatening to go after your credit score if you don't pay, et cetera, et cetera. Long story short, there needs to be more transparency. There needs to be a communication upfront of how much you need to pay for a standardized service like delivering a baby, and then how much or if there will be fees and expenditures after the fact. All that needs to be communicated up front. And I know sometimes there can be uh, surprises and complications, but it, these things are documented. You know, there shouldn't be surprises to the hospital. So I think some of these things could be ameliorated. Uh, there could also be a streamlined process for highly qualified doctors and dentists from overseas because we have a shortage of doctors and dentists in this country to also help and serve our population. So those are some things I would love to look at, to brainstorm, to get a team of experts on it. Uh, so I like to talk about it, that as well. All right. And well, on, along the lines of healthcare and helping people and kind of merging the, the culture of life and death, how about um, the, the drug epidemic that we have, specifically the opiate epidemic here in, in Virginia and also in the United States? But we're, we're talking about Virginia specifically here. Um, what, let's talk about drugs in general. And, you know, of course, here in, in Virginia, we've uh, you know, moved towards legalizing marijuana and that has other implications. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I compare it to tools that society gives to governing officials to keep us safe. And, and an analogy that I use are speed limits. You know, we have speed limits all over the place. We have neighborhood speed limits around 25 miles per hour. We have small road speed limits that can be up to 55. You have highway speed limits, 70, 75, et cetera. Hardly anyone observes every speed limit all the time. That's just the reality. And law enforcement does not enforce the letter of the law all the time. No government can, not even totalitarian regimes, can enforce the letter of the law on their citizens. So why do, why do I relate that to the drug pandemic and to gambling and marijuana, et cetera? It's because 
society now is saying, oh, well, we want certain things. We want to do certain things and we don't want government to be able to say no. We don't want law enforcement to be able to enforce anything. So we're going to give a moral justification and try to make it legal. That will have a negative effect on society eventually. Marijuana is illegal in the federal government for good reason. You can't have a pilot or a soldier or a spy with his judgment or her judgment impaired by marijuana. And the idea that law enforcement is going to be able to help people maintain a four plant limit is simply not true. They're not going to be able to, just like they can't enforce speed limits. They're not going to be able to enforce or help people maintain a four plant limit. So people that struggle with addiction, people that really do struggle with uh, cannabis there. I mean, it's, it's a free for all. People are going to be growing more. There's, it's not legal to buy and sell right now. And another thing, the grass is always greener, right? Even if people abide by the laws, the changing laws, the fluid laws that Virginia has now, the grass is always going to be greener. People are always going to be searching for something pure that gives a better high, a pure sensation. And so it's, it's just going to have a spiral negative effect. We need these laws in place as tools for the government to protect its people, just like it does with speed limits. So that is my position. I'm sticking with that because I care about people and I don't want to see increased addiction. I don't want to see financial ruin. And I just want our best and brightest to continue to serve in the federal government and in the military. You know, and I really like how you put that as well too, that you know, this is not something that's been ruled out. You said that the this is not legal at the federal level, and it's not. And I think it's a real disservice to the community the way that this has been ruled out. I mean, let's just take, let's sit back for a minute. Let, let's say that you you are for legalization of marijuana. Let's just say for, you know, for instance, that you are. I think we could agree on this, though, that even if you're for it, you have to say that it was poorly ruled out. And what I mean by that is that it is not legal at the federal level. And a lot of people don't understand that, particularly our young people. We are asking our young uh, uh, high school students, college students, and, and young adults to understand the nuances of federal, state, and local law. And so you may live in an area like the District of Columbia or Virginia, and you believe you've been told that marijuana is legal. Okay, well, and it may be where you are, but it's not legal federally. So now down the road, you want to go into a career in the military, let's say, or you want to be a police officer, a federal agent, um, or an airline pilot, or you know, some profession where you cannot smoke marijuana. And in fact, um, you it's very limited in the history that you can have in your use of marijuana, and you may effectively close the that career option right and you're confused because you you in your mind didn't break the law you didn't understand that look i live in virginia i live in the district i didn't break the law why can't i go into this profession and then we representing that profession you know me being a former fbi agent and naval officer we say oh no no you broke the law you broke federal law and again i think it's just such a disservice to lay that upon a 17-year-old when they never understood that. And I think that that's a real leadership failure on the community leaders because they because we don't ex, we don't uh, tell people that up front, we don't explain it to them. And furthermore, 
what the government does not do, and I know we don't do it here in Virginia, is even if you're going to legalize it, don't say, okay, we're going to legalize this, but let's tell you the dangers of this. All I've heard is how yeah. uh, uh, you know marijuana it can, can help you, it can relax you, it's got medicinal qualities, this, that, and the other thing. Not once have I ever heard the governor or anyone else in the state legislature in Virginia talk about the dangers of the addiction. And they're going to say it's not that addictive. Oh, yes, it is. And there's a lot of metadata to support that. And, and as you know, Tim, yeah. I do a lot of work uh, in the recovery field. And in fact, I'm doing work in a treatment center as we speak. And I cannot tell you how many patients come into that facility and they struggle with marijuana. Marijuana has destroyed their lives and they are fighting uh, dearly to break that addiction because it has destroyed everything that they held dear. But you never hear Governor Northam talk about that, do you? No. And again, ironically, being a physician, you would think that he would be the person to talk about it, but no, he doesn't. And and it's not just the federal government, right? It's not just the military. I mean, let, let's look at the World Anti-Doping Agency. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, that's Shikari right. Richardson, yeah. right. right. She tested positive. She's banned mm-hmm. from the Olympics. She didn't even, she couldn't compete in the 100 meter race in Tokyo. And then she was dropped off the Olympic team. You know, it has horrible consequences. This is a person in the best health of her life. She's healthier than 99.9% of the population. And yet, because she tested positive for THC, and they know the effects that it can have, and that it can give an unfair advantage, it's banned. And and so we're sending this message to our young people, trying to say, oh, yeah, you know, it's cool. It, it's good to go. Like THC, you, it, it's not that dangerous. No, the world takes this seriously. Athletics take this seriously. Governments, militaries take this seriously for good reason. So, like you said, right, we are doing a disservice to our young people. We're doing a disservice to the Commonwealth of Virginia, the way this is being handled. And, of course, they know this. That's why they tried. They changed it from 2024 to 2021, nine days ago. Nine days ago, this went into effect. It, it's, <laughs> it's ridiculous. And they, they knew that it was being force-fed. The population isn't ready for it. And that's why they changed it. Mm. And that's that's a lot. That's the trend right now is having policies forced down the throats of the citizens. And you you talked earlier about how we are a representative republic and that we have a constitution. And if there's things that you don't like, we have a um, a constitutionally mandated or there's a, an amendment process where you use li- which is dictated in the the constitution. And we aren't using that anymore. Um, everything is sleight of hand. Everything's an executive order. Everything is kind of like done in the middle of the night, which is not what our founders ever intended. Uh, you know, look, if you want to change an amendment to the Constitution, if you want to change how we're doing things, there's a process for that, right? But things are just being sped up and then pushed down your throat, and that's just, you know, that's something else that I hope that, God willing, you get into the, the state legislature that, that can be changed. This just in the, the middle of the night kind of surprising people with decisions. Uh, we have to be open. We have to have a, a public debate about these things. That's why I'm so bothered about these uh, school board meetings being shut down in Loudoun County, because because we don't have public discourse anymore. The public is not even, it seems like we're not even part of the process anymore. Yeah, which is flipped on its head because it's supposed to be that public officials are public servants. They are representatives of their people. Their constituents are their employers. They serve them. So, right, and we've turned it on its head. We have now oligarchies and autocracies that think they know what it's, that they know how to run people's lives better than they do. <laughs> No, they don't. So it's it's exactly what you're saying. 
Wow. Wow. Uh, any, anything else um, regarding you and the differences between your opponent that you would like to highlight? I mean, I, I know there's a lot to highlight. I, I think that there's probably night and day difference. It's, it's the difference between night and day between you and your opponent. But anything that you want to particularly spe- speak to? Yeah, you know, I, I come from a life and a legacy of service. I mean, having grown up overseas, I have an international perspective my opponent doesn't have. I have public and private sector experience my opponent doesn't have. I, I've served many years in the military. I continue to serve. I have leadership experience my opponent doesn't have. I know what it's like to make tough executive decisions, to have to separate a sailor for breach of contract, or to retain a sailor, or to award a sailor, a soldier, a Marine. I've worked in joint environments overseas. I've deployed to Iraq. I've worked in Southcom with multinational joint exercises with 12 plus nations with their armies and navies and their air forces and their marines. I get the international dialogue and exchange. So I'm comfortable speaking and engaging with people from diverse backgrounds. My opponent does not have that. I speak multiple languages. I am well educated. I have a family. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a Christian. I'm a dedicated conservative and patriot. These are things my opponent is not. Mm. Very well said. And, you know, I you talked about your education, and you have multiple degrees, do you not? I do. Yeah. Tell us about, about those. What, what degrees do you have? Well, sure. So, I mentioned earlier, I went to Cedarville University and got a degree in global economics, international business. Uh, that was great. It just complemented uh, the upbringing I had, a mix of private school, public school, homeschool, international schools. And then uh, after I served a number of years, I got a Master of Arts in Theological Studies. On top of that, I did a Master of Divinity at a very good seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I also got a degree at Johns Hopkins SICE, the School of Advanced International Studies, mm-hmm. a Master's in International Public Policy. I also have a degree in joint professional military education from the Naval War College. Mm. And each each of these degrees have complemented each other, especially the public policy one at Johns Hopkins just up the road in D.C. was fundamental to helping me see how policy can be helpful and beneficial to people and to a society at large. And just, you know, my international classmates uh, people from the Ivy Leagues and people from Heartland Universities as well. That's what I love about Johns Hopkins. It overlaps all those uh, different backgrounds. Uh, it was just wonderful to have that exchange and dialogue and to be able to debate different ideas, you know. And, and so that's another thing I have that my opponent does not. And as you said, our message and our policies are superior because they actually help people and we're willing to dialogue and debate yeah, very, very well said. Well, in the closing moments, any last parting pieces of information of information that you think would help our listeners? Sure. So my website is timcoxforvirginia.com. That is all written out, timcoxforvirginia.com. Uh, we have a presence on all the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, MeWe, which is a conservative Facebook, LinkedIn as well. So if you just search Tim Cox for Virginia, you'll get to that. Also, if you search Tim Cox for delegate, it'll be rerouted to these places as well. So it's it's pretty easy to find me. You can donate on the site. We have a secure and easy donation feature. Uh, You can contact me and I will get back to you. So yes, those are the main points of contact. 
Well, fantastic. You know, Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for taking the time out of your, I, I know you have a very, very busy schedule. You guys, listeners, you can you can hear what this man is doing. He is somebody that's up and working and grinding every single day. And, you know, hopefully uh, later on this year, when we get into that election cycle, you're going to be working just as hard for the, for the people in Virginia down there yes. in the House of Delegates. Thank you so much. Well, guys, you know, thank you so much. And, and again, reach out to Tim Cox. And you heard all of the uh, the different uh, ways that you can contact him. And just as a reminder, it's TimCoxForVirginia.com, TimCoxVirginia.com, and a lot of uh, other options. I'm sure you Google him as well. And you can probably, if you didn't catch all of the, the social media sites there, I'm sure you can uh, Google his name and you'll find those as well. But thanks again for listening to the show. And this is just uh, one more interview in our series of interviews of the candidates that will be running uh, on the Republican ticket here later on in this election cycle. And we just hope that you will just support these candidates as much as you can. And, um, you know, guys, this is this is the fight. This is the fight that we are in. And this is our country. And I'm just uh, so hopeful that we are going to take back the House, you know, the State House here in Virginia. We're going to take back the Governor's Mansion. And we are going to uh, bring Virginia back to what we all know that this great state can be, and we're going to do that with mm-hmm. people like Tim Cox. So, you folks, again, this is Mark Vines. Follow me on Facebook. Uh, give us a like. Give us a listen. You know, send this podcast around to all your friends, especially your liberal friends, if you have any of them left. But if you do have some liberal friends, maybe go make some liberal friends and give them this podcast. And folks, we'll be talking with you soon.